Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, it's February 1st. 2018. Charles Marshall here again for the West Coast Foreclosure Show, which, as a reminder, we broadcast every other Thursday. And then on alternate Thursdays, Neil has his show and will be broadcasting per usual. And I have with me today, as I often have and I always appreciate, Bill Padalo, who will be discussing a non-judicial foreclosure case out of the state of Texas. Hence the tie-in to so many of the issues that we need to deal with and that we do discuss regularly on the West Coast Foreclosure Show, as non-judicial foreclosures are at the heart of what happens on this West Coast and in the associated Ninth Circuit. I am broadcasting live, as always, from Southern California. Now, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com, and it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount is always appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog, on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. <clears throat> um, so, Bill, if you can let the listeners know, you know, as a as kind of start in to our discussion today, uh, the the jumping off point is Schaefer versus Alexander, if you could tell the, the listeners a bit about that case. Well, sure. It's um, one of those cases against one of the uh, nemesis oppositional uh, entities that I've been investigating now for uh, quite heavily for about the last year, and that's U.S. Bank Trust N.A. Uh, as trustee of the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust. Um I was called in uh, kind of in the late stages of this case that's out of uh, the U.S. District Court, Western District of Texas. Uh, it's titled uh, Joseph Schaefer versus a number of defendants, including the LSF-9 Master Participation Trust. Um, for those listeners, I'm sure we'll post uh, at least a, a brief on this um, afterwards, but the case number is 1-17-CV-297. Uh, um 
In this particular case, uh, like all of the cases, really, um, we're trying to, it's a non-judicial situation, but trying to penetrate the capacity and the standing issue of this entity. Um, because to date, with all of the information that I've assembled from cases involving this entity and other jurisdictions around the case, all we are getting in on a, on a regular basis is more and more inconsistent documents uh, by the counsel and attorneys for this entity that raises way more red flags and, and issues um, uh, due to these inconsistencies, <clears throat> which should allow uh, the parties on, uh, on this side of the fence to challenge whether this, this entity is even real, uh, what type of assets they hold, if any, if they're even registered, if the trust documents they're producing are, have any legitimacy whatsoever. Um, and, and that's simply uh, what we were doing here in the Schaefer case. <clears throat> and the court had dismissed the, the action um, when we put forth all this evidence to show that these, these documents don't uh, – they don't match up in any way, shape, or form, as specifically uh, the trust instrument or typically what's called pooling and servicing agreements, the uh, governing documents for these trusts. Um, in this particular situation, this entity has produced multiple versions of what they claim is a trust document or a pooling and servicing agreement, <clears throat> which is the governing instrument for this entity, and all of them are completely different. They have different names. Uh, different um, uh, titles to these documents. For example, I have a master servicing agreement presented by this entity in a Florida case, and they're claiming under affidavit that that's, quote-unquote, the pooling and servicing agreement, which is absolutely ludicrous. Um, and then they produce uh, trust uh, agreements, um, different master servicing agreements, um, all kinds of different things, and every one of these documents are, I would say, at least 50% or more redacted. So here we have conflicting documents, heavily redacted. They have some signatures on them, but none of them are notarized. Um, the entity representing the LSF9, the attorneys and the counsel, do not seem to have an answer or do not seem to rebut um, a lot of the the things that we're saying against it, um, and yet the courts are giving it this presumption of validity. And in the Schaefer case, the court dismissed the action, and, and it's now motions are being filed to say, listen, this is uh, um, a manifest injustice, really, under the law, especially in Texas. Uh, there's some good case law cited in here regarding participation agreements and these participation trusts, that they have to be able to prove um, what their interests are and show the complete documents and have it in the purview of the court's eye to determine who has the rights to what. Because once these participation agreements are entered into, it changes the entire dynamic of uh, the interests of the investors uh, and who has rights to do anything. And then without that knowledge, without being able to read uh, what's in these documents, it's virtually impossible to determine the validity of anything or the rights or authorities of anybody. And I think what's um, been really – you want to chime in right now, Charles, on some? 
Um, no, I think I think what you've relayed so far is uh, a, a good account of where this case is at. I mean, I'm I'm curious to get what your take is on, you know, how you think the the court is going to process the argument here, you know, in, in, in its current form as a reply. Well, I think even if the court denies the reconsideration or whatnot, I think it's certainly ripe for an appeal. And I think uh, my non-lawyer view on it is that he cites to some uh, very good, strong case law to support it on on appeal to um, to to you know have it remanded back. But what is really um, in all this investigation and all the case law research and everything else, what's becoming more and more clear to me, anyway. And, and there's articles written all over the place about this, is that these Delaware statutory trust laws, and that's what we have in this case, this LSF-9 and many of its uh, offshoots um, and many of the synonymous types of trusts that we're seeing nowadays, they're all flocking and registering as Delaware statutory trusts. And the reason is quite simple. I mean, they it, it's, it's a, a playing field there that's just, rife and, and conducive for fraudulent behavior. And that's just not my own opinion. There is a uh, article, not a, really an article, but a white paper that was written um, about uh, in 2005 with uh, uh, the threat analysis, a threat assessment to money laundering. And in Chapter 8 of it, they discuss, and this was put out by the Department of Justice, this was an IRS, a big uh, joint effort, they talk about shell companies and trusts as being uh, the method of choice for uh, tax evasion and money laundering and, cr- and criminal uh, crime being committed, white-collar crime. And everything I'm seeing fits within what is described as this money laundering threat. And it's, it's amazing to me that when you present or come into court and you show the inconsistencies and the the flat out um, false statements made in the affidavits and and whatnot with this particular entity anyway, that the courts are still uh, basically ignoring uh, the the and and, re, and not forcing this entity to come forward with any semblance of proof that it that it's actually a legitimate. Um, uh, trust or what its you know what its authorities are to do anything and there's very little case law on this it's really hard to find there's no regulation by the authorities of these trusts they're not required in Delaware to file who the settlers are they're not required to file their trust agreements um, it is just um, again very simple to uh, create these documents and and then proceed to try to foreclose on somebody's property. So one of the cases that um, Connie Lasko, our paralegal over at Lending Lies, uh, pulled together is this, uh, uh, that's a, the Lanzibar case, or Sanzibar case, uh, Genzibar, I'm sorry. Um, and it gives a little bit of an interesting uh, quote in there by the, uh, the court in Delaware that says, when a party desires to raise an issue as to the legal existence of any party or the capacity of any party to sue or be sued or the authority of a party to sue or be sued in a representative capacity, 
the party shall do so by specific negative averment, which negative averment shall include such supporting particulars as are peculiarly within the pleader's knowledge. Now, I'll probably let you touch on that a little bit there, Charles, from the legal language there, but I'm beginning to feel more confident that with this mounting evidence of inconsistencies and lies that I'm assembling on this entity and and with some others as well, that there's enough there to uh, to, to at least force the court to, to dig deeper and look under the hood and force these uh, cockroaches to stay in the in the light for a little bit longer and and prove uh, that they have anything and the emperor has some clothes. What do you think? Um, I mean, I think the way you you frame that is you know is very accurate and telling. I mean, I think the listeners should know that uh, one reason why a lot of these cases end up it's called the Delaware Court of Chancery, by the way which this literally goes back to a British court of chancery that I don't know the exact origins of that court, but they go back way before the colonial period in our own country and well before, you know, the American founding and courts of chancery to some extent in Britain, but especially here, are directed to address matters from an equitable point of view. I mean, what that basically means is where the statutory law is either thin or potentially subject to litigation, which is almost always the case, depending on the creativeness of the litigants and, and or their attorneys, then the upshot of that is this becomes a really popular forum, particularly for corporate entities, because so many set up in Delaware, not least because, you know, the Delaware, the Delaware Chancery Court is, is fairly sympathetic to the corporate litigants. I mean, on the other hand, if you, if you, if you actually look at the, the charter of, how these cases are supposed to be decided, then I think part of what you're saying, Bill, is that standing is a fundamental issue, just like it would be anywhere else. And if you look at the particulars of that, this set of defendants, the corporate ones in particular, particularly U.S. Bank, you know, the U.S. Bank trusted issue, they should really have a difficult time, uh, even to the extent that spinoffs of what's relevant to this case are, are being heard in this Delaware court. In other words, just to give some clarification for the, for, for the listeners, often this chancery court will sign off on, on, on corporate pleadings in one way or another, but their remit, meaning their responsibility, is, is really to look at standing issues from a, a first principles point of view and from that point of view, U.S. Bank should not be able to move forward. I mean, what's what's your take on that, Bill? Well, you're correct. And first of all, U.S. Bank is only there by name. Uh, typically, it's Caliber as the servicer who's pulling all the strings and calling all the shots. And there was a, a, a great case down in 
uh, Florida not too long ago where uh, the judge dismissed the case um, when Caliber uh, came in with a power of attorney from U.S. Bank and, the, and, and couldn't validate it or speak to it, and the, and the court tossed the case and said, where's your witness from U.S. Bank? Okay, now we've talked about this endlessly on, on other shows and what the trustees and how they know nothing and they don't participate in anything and have no knowledge of anything. Now, that also plays right into the, uh, the issue that we've been touting forever is that if the trustee can't identify who the certificate holders are and who it is that they claim to represent as a fiduciary, um, how can that entity cry foul on behalf of anyone for that matter? But, um, this master participation trust is a is a is a uh, it's really an interesting um, well I shouldn't say interesting uh, it's more convoluted every day uh, by what they're coming in and saying I have uh, for example I have a case in uh, Florida where this entity comes in holding a note that has a direct endorsement. Uh, on the note from a 1998 entity, Great Western something or other, and it's endorsed directly to the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. And they come in with an affidavit saying we're the holder of this note and we own it and so on and so forth and we're entitled to foreclose. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, you're, you know, where's the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco who it's, who it's endorsed to? There's, they're not present anywhere. They haven't, it's, uh, it's just crazy what they're trying to throw forward into the court still to this day and expect the court not to ask any questions or to challenge something that ridiculous. But um, what we're seeing, what we can see so far, and I'm going to go back to this, is, is these heavily redacted documents where they actually black out these sections that speak to who's who, and who has the right to do what, they're all blacked out. And whether it's a, a, a trust instrument uh, of the many different types that they're putting forth with this type of case, or, you, or, you, or they come in with a printed-off uh, PSA off the SEC website, these documents are not notarized or signed uh, by or acknowledged by any notaries. Um, half of or more, almost always, the um, indexed certifications of um, receipt of the assets, all the types of things that are uh, as accompany these documents, none of them are executed. Uh, even though, so, how they can hold any weight in terms of evidence is uh, is beyond me. Because there also is no one that I've seen anyway. Uh, that can speak to uh, the formation of of these trusts and and who set them up, who filed this stuff. It's all done by servicers on hearsay, speaking to what they pull off the uh, internet themselves. I mean, we have this U.S. Bank uh, uh, corporate trust executive uh, Richards that we've uh, uh, Neil posted a. Uh, article that I sent over to him a, a bit ago on him. And he, you know, he talks about uh, in his deposition uh, a lot of the same things about, I don't know how these trusts are put together. I, don't, I mean, uh, just look up at the pooling and servicing agreement. If you ask any specific question about how 
these people have uh, gotten their rights to do what they're doing or any type of specifics, they just say, I don't know, go read it yourself. Go look up at the document. It speaks for itself. No one has any knowledge of of um, the, the, the people who set these things up. So anyway, it's it's rife for for fraud, and, um, and I think um, pretty soon, I'm confident, we're going to crack this thing by some court, by some judge in some jurisdiction after pointing out all these inconsistencies who's going to say, listen, um, if you are who you say you are, this shouldn't be too easy to, uh, uh, it shouldn't be difficult to prove. At least file a privilege log and put the unredacted version, if you're, and that's the other thing too, uh, Charles. They're not stating in any of these cases the reasons why redaction is necessary. They're not claiming that this is some sort of um, work product privilege or any type of reason for the redactions. They're simply coming out and saying that's the document and and uh, uh, deal with it. <laughs> Essentially, we're not going to show you what's underneath the, the blackened out areas. At some point... Uh, um, or, I mean, people start to, uh, should be ejecting that that's, that's a valid document when it's, you know, only 30, 40 percent uh, there and it's not signed by anybody who can speak to it. I mean, I think you're raising a, a fundamental point about redaction, which I, I think it's useful for me to address that now. Um, I, you're illustrating how so often the institutional players, be they defendants in the non-judicial foreclosure context as here, or be they plaintiffs in the judicial foreclosure context elsewhere, bottom line is redactions are being overused quite dramatically and quite pointedly. And I think the reason for that is to essentially hide and delimit public exposure about genuinely bad actors in, in these areas. And as always, the bad acting needs to be continually challenged and needs to be continually exposed to courts of various jurisdictions until and unless the, the rulings recognizing these bad acts are essentially generated. And this particular case, I think, is a good opportunity for that to happen. I think it's well set up that that could happen. It certainly should happen. But kind of to amplify my point about redaction, it's being abused. I mean, redaction is something that was rarely done decades ago. Even as recently as 10 years ago, you didn't see a lot of it. Since then, there have been a lot of legitimate statutes passed at both state and federal levels protecting consumer social security numbers, protecting, protecting consumer bank account financial information, health account information. I mean, there are legitimate, sensible reasons behind the kind of redaction happy legal regime we've been living with now for a number of years on the other hand like any legitimate framework like any legitimate format the legitimate purposes 
for those formats and frameworks become a kind of shell into which can flow and do flow machinations of all kinds and, and simply illegitimate uses that are exploiting the purpose of shielding. Uh, just, you know, so again, I realize my listeners realize this stuff at a certain level, but one of the goals of this show is always to show how first principles are behind so much of what we look at and what we analyze. And the first principle I'm talking about now is this. It's absolutely critical that lawsuits are public, and so they are. One of the primary purposes of that publicness is so that private actors will know with whom they're dealing. So if you've got a business deal, if you've got a business prospect, if you've got a legal problem and you're looking at players on the ground, you're looking at who to coordinate with, you're looking even at who to sue, you need information, you need documentation. And if that's all hidden, if that's all covered, if that's all illegitimately, in many cases, the way redaction has been used in the last several years, illegitimately, if you can't get the, the, the primary names of players and individuals and institutional parties who are involved in a lot of these bad acts, then it reduces the ability to conduct your business or your legal affairs. Because, again, that's the reason public lawsuits are public. That's the reason lawsuits are overwhelmingly default. The, overwhelmingly de- the, the overwhelming default of lawsuits is that they're public. And the purpose of that, again, is so that everyone knows out there with whom you're dealing and you, you do a little due diligence, checking out on lawsuits, so you hear about a specific lawsuit, and then you take it from there. Um, you know, I appreciate all your, your input on this, Bill. And as always, I think you've provided listeners with, you know, very detailed, even profound information that's extremely relevant, in this case, to nonjudicial foreclosures, which, again, is the bailiwick of what we do here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show, that we do talk about judicial foreclosures as well. Um, I'm going to go briefly into something that looks like it's completely unrelated to the foreclosure world, but it really isn't, and I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, The Minnesota Supreme Court came out with a decision recently. I don't have the names of the players involved here. I think a simple Google or, you know, similar Google-type search will pull this information up for people. I may address this in a blog or in the next show, but what I'm talking about is there was a recent Minnesota Supreme Court decision which said that if you put your fingerprints as your passcode for your, this would typically be an Apple phone, by the way, you know, hypothetically, fingerprint technology is going to be available for Android phones as well. Um, But those are the two standards for those who don't use cell phones, which is a vanishingly tiny number of people. Granted, you know, they're still out there. Frankly, I think they're out there for good reason. But most of us use cell phones, the vast majority of us do. 
if you use a fingerprint to secure your information on the cell phone, just be warned that if some police officer, if some government official wants to rifle through your your phone and they have so-called probable cause, they can do so according to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Now, I don't know if this is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, but one of the takeaways from this is if you've got a cell phone, if you secure your data, and you have a passcode, you probably should stay with that for now because you use fingerprints, that's not even protected by the Fifth Amendment, according to the Supreme Court of Minnesota. And I uh, may address their convoluted logic on this in a future show. I mean, the reason this is relevant to this show, even at the first level, is it shows how crazy courts can be. It shows how self-interested courts can be. It's very convenient that the Minnesota Supreme Court lines up with all of law enforcement in Minnesota, including federal law enforcement, who absolutely intend that they be able to to exploit this decision to rifle through people's private phones. So that's all for today. Neil will be in next week. And as always, I will see you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the 